Turkey Call All Access, the official podcast of the National Wild Turkey Federation. Brought to you by Nomad. Turkey Call All Access is a digital campfire where we discuss topics of the day, conservation efforts, tips and techniques to better your experience of field, and our members' stories. Welcome back into another episode of the Turkey Call All Access podcast. It's Conservation Week. Woo! We are hoping that this week will inspire you to take conservation action. We're putting out information out there about the conservation work we're doing. And here to talk about that, we've got Doug Little, Jared McJunkin, and Pat Dorsey. They have a wealth of knowledge in the conservation space. Really excited to share this conversation with you all. We're going to get right to it in 90 seconds. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Welcome back, everyone. We're sitting down with Jared McJunkin, Doug Little, and Pat Dorsey, and we're talking conservation this week. It is Conservation Week, um, or at least this recording will be live on Conservation Week, um, and we're just here to talk about the work that we have going on, kind of from uh, a, a big overview Um, obviously we have a ton of conservation projects going on throughout the the states. Um, and some of those are, you know, your state local level volunteers. Others are, are some bigger projects that we've partnered with other conservation organizations or government organizations to make happen. Um, but before we get into that, um, why don't we just do go around the horn and, and introduce ourselves? So let's start with uh, Jared. Uh, Jared, who are you? What do you do? Well, good morning, Gilbert. Uh, Jared McDuncan. I'm the Director of Conservation Operations for our Central Region. I'm located in the Flint Hills of Kansas, and in a couple months, I've been with the organization 17 years and um, served a lot of different roles, but started as a, as a district biologist up in the Dakotas, Montana, and Wyoming, and now oversee our Central Region. All right. Flint Hills are beautiful, for those of you who haven't been there. Doug, why don't you go next? 
Thanks. So yeah, I'm I'm uh, Jared's counterpart in the Eastern region for NWTF. So I'm I'm Doug Little, and I'm based out of the Catskill Mountains in New York State. And um, you know, I I basically uh, provide oversight for some of the conservation work that's being done in the East, which you know kind of goes from Maine all the way down to Florida and across the Gulf and up a little north from there into a few states. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. All right. And last but certainly not least, um, Pat. You want to jump in? I, people are familiar with you, but might as well just go over it again. All right. Thanks, Gilbert. It's great to be with you guys this morning. I am the Jared and Doug of the West Region for the National Wild Turkey Federation. The West Region includes all of the Rocky Mountain states and it goes west to the Pacific Coast. And I am located in southwest Colorado. All right. And I, I assume we'll officially change your email byline to the Doug and Jared of the Rocky Mountains. I guess uh, to start things off, um, we'll uh, we'll just jump in. Um, you know, I think I think our listeners have heard um, a lot recently uh, about the Rocky Mountain region with Rocky Mountain Restoration Initiative. Uh, we talked, um, I think it was two episodes ago, about the Habitat for the Hatch. Um, so. I wanted to start with Jared and and talk about that central region. What's going on? What kind of high level projects do we have happening? Um, what are you excited about? Um, what should our uh, our listenership and and the members of the NWTF be excited about? Yeah, sure. First of all, I'm excited because it's starting to feel like fall a little bit. Um, yes, it's, it's September. And, um, I'm getting ready to go chase some bugling elk, so um, it's it's a beautiful time of year. But um, yeah, in the central region. It extends basically from Texas straight up to North Dakota and then kind of go from Missouri up to Ohio. Um, and so just in that geography, you can tell that it's a pretty diverse region, uh, boundaries that we set. And if you know our America's Big Six, it actually encompasses a couple of those and parts of another um, and, and part of Doug's region, just a little bit of America's Mid-South Rebirth and a little bit of America's Southern Piney Woods. But the bulk of the central, our central region in those 14 states is either in the West, which is great open spaces, or in America's crossroads up in that upper Midwest. So uh, project diversity across that, of course, but probably um, I'm most excited. I continue to be most excited about our Waterways for Wildlife initiative. That was just uh, an awesome effort with a, a cross cross branch team, included Pat, because a few of her staff are on there as well, because that includes basically the left half of my region and then the, the right half of, of Pat's region. So 10 states. And that is, that's an initiative that's aimed at um, declining riparian area health, which in this part of the world is really important for wild turkeys. Obviously um, they need roost trees. They sleep in trees at night, uh, except when they're, you know, uh, nesting and, and starting an early brood. So it's really important. And if you spent much time in this part of the world, you've seen the decline of our riparian corridors. So those, those areas around rivers and streams, typically, you know, occupied by trees, but also some grass and, and some other herbaceous uh, vegetation, but really, really important for turkeys, but also really, really important for neotropical migrating songbirds, important for bald eagles, important for uh, migration of big game as we go farther west. So just really critical areas. And we just, uh, I guess this spring had our second round um, of funding and proposals that went out and, uh, just been really awesome to see. I mean, we were up to, you know, over $8 million, I think, uh, out on the ground the first two years That's partner dollars and our dollars, but lots of really good projects. I could talk all day about that, but you know, just anything, 
aimed at improving riparian area health we're, we're doing. Um, and then, you know, as you go farther east in the region, of course, we got a lot of focus on oak restoration and oak savanna work, white oaks and, and other oak species. And that, of course, varies from Missouri uh, up to, to Michigan and, and Minnesota. But a lot of that work is really uh, important for wild turkeys as well. And we do that through so many different um, avenues. And I know Doug and Pat are going to talk about them too. But you've got obviously our hunting heritage super fund where those state dollars are going right on the ground in those states. And the, the volunteer committees are helping pick that. But then the other big tool that we all use across the country is, is probably with our strongest uh, partner, certainly on the federal level, the U.S. Forest Service, and that's stewardship contracting on our national forest. And, and you know, I can certainly go into more detail there, but we've, we've got a lot of them, not as many as Doug in, in the east region, down in region eight of the Forest Service, but in region nine, uh, we've got quite a few in our area. And again, those are, you know, typically forest stand improvement projects that are you know, reducing wildfire risk, making better habitat, uh, creating openings for a lot of different critters. It could be carnal blue butter, uh, butterflies. It could be, um, you know, I know down in the South woodpeckers. So um, we're using that tool a lot as well. There's yeah, there's just so much that, that we could dive into that. Um, one of the things that I was I was really geeking out about um, as a as a beaver trapper was uh, the work that we partnered to do with beaver dam analogs um, and and kind of restoring some of those areas on the plains. And I don't know, that might actually, ex- does that extend into Pat's region? It does. So yeah, it's uh, basically it's, it's um, Texas up to North Dakota, over to Montana and straight down to New Mexico. So about half in Pat's region and about half in my region. So yeah, we've done several projects with, with beaver dam analogs. And I think BDAs, you might hear them called and I think just like us as biologists to, to put an acronym to it. Right. But, um, you know, I think, uh, I think there's a lot of excitement with them. It's a, it's a pretty low, um, low cost, uh, thing that you could do out there to kind of mimic what beavers would do on a dam or in those areas, you know, whether the trees aren't there for it or, you know, beavers are just moved out of that area. And so, um, we're, we're, we're trying it. We're working with partners. I know there's a lot, a lot of people looking into the impacts and how um, monitoring them and seeing how effective they are. And I guess actually real quick, we should maybe define what we mean by beaver dam analogs. So it's just literally creating a dam like a beaver would. Um, and, and that's usually just done with some sort of an obstruction. Um, you know, it could be, could be rocks, it could be uh, trees, it could be other, uh, other forms of litter, but basically you're trying to pool up the water a little bit. Uh, if you know anything about beavers, which Gilbert's a trapper, so he does, they they cannot stand the sound of running water. They've got to go plug it, and that's just what they do. And so um, when they historically do that, that, all, that will create some pools. And what happens in a riparian system that we are liking to see mimicked is you start to get uh, a little bit wetter environment uh, upstream and above that dam, and it starts to help with things like cottonwoods and those willows and things that uh, need their feet a little bit more wet. That's a good segue into, I, I wanted to touch a little bit on, um, cause you mentioned that declining riparian health is, is kind of a big issue throughout your region. Um, what, let's get maybe down to some details about like, what are the specific challenges that riparian issues face and what's the work that we're doing? Um, what are we doing to address those issues? Yeah. You know, um, again, could talk for hours on this, but I think there, there's a, it's like everything else, you know, it's death by a thousand cuts. It's not just one single thing. Um, and, and certainly in, in Pat's part of this 
water waste for wildlife initiative well across the whole thing but when water is an issue water quality but water quantity and of course the farther you go west the more important that is and so we've got streams that um have been you know dammed up over time you know there's a lot of off-site water going to irrigation to feed this country and, and beyond um there's there's livestock access during critical times where you know that, those cottonwoods are really palatable to uh, livestock and they'll just hammer those cottonwood seedlings come up you know cottonwoods uh, it takes a it takes a bit to get them from a uh you know a seed to a mature tree that a, a turkey is going to roost in and there's just a lot going against them quite frankly they, they really have to hit bare soil uh, those seeds have to fall you guys if you have air conditioners if you have cottonwoods around you you know the cottonwood seed rain that's got to fall on scarified soil or soil that's exposed and and those seedlings have to get their their feet wet and get up before another big flood comes in there and shears them off and so you know very dependent upon that and then once they're up again they're pretty palatable to wildlife um, as well as uh, livestock so keeping livestock out of there in critical times is really important protecting springs and things to keep water flowing in those riparian areas um, and then the other big one i would say is invasive species uh, again that's a that's a thing we fight in, in every region. Some of those things were, you know, brought in for ornamentals and we're dealing with them, you know, salt cedar, purple loose strife. Um, there's just these these competition uh, in those areas that are really critical for cottonwoods and need water, too. So when you start bringing in Russian olive or, or salt cedar tamarisk, they're competing for that water. And tamarisk in, in particular, because it it releases some leaches salt into the soil and makes it pretty unhabitable for everything else for a while. So even when we go in and remove those, it takes a while to get the soil kind of uh, back to a place where we can get other things to grow. So yeah, whole suite of things. Um, and uh, man, you, you, the farther you go west, certainly in Western Dakotas, Eastern uh, Montana and Wyoming, you'll see those old decadent cottonwood galleries and there's just a few big old cottonwoods left. But man, if you can find them, there's usually a pile of turkeys in them, which is, which is good from a hunting perspective. But we want to get some more of those out on the ground, you know, so they're there for future generations. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's something that people, um, it's, it's hard to sort of, if, if you're not aware of invasive species, if you don't know what they are, you look at a landscape and just see green and just assume that things are okay. Um, when you've got this whole suite of non-native plants that are causing all sorts of problems. Um, and I've, I know I've talked about this before, but in my area, it's, it's honeysuckle. It's just, such a pain and such a pain to remove it takes so much effort um to get rid of it but um speaking of the west uh let's uh jump over to pat um what do we have going on i know um the people will have seen some of um the work with the Phoenix recycling, uh, facility, um, by the time this podcast drops, um, I know we have a bunch of stuff with RMRI, the timber transfer project. Like we have a ton of stuff going on in the West, but I'll let Pat take it from there. Well, thanks Gilbert. You know, the biggest thing in the West is the condition of our forests. Um, and throughout much of the West, the forest type that we have is, um, dependent on, a frequent natural fire interval um, that that didn't burn very severely. And, the, you know, the Forest Service has been putting out fires because we wanted them to for over 110 years now, right? And and our forests, we're finding, are, are choked with small diameter trees that um, 
you know, don't provide good wildlife habitat. They um, don't provide good protection for communities that live in these areas, experiencing a lot of high um, intensity wildfires. Um, you know, they, they don't even provide good recreational opportunities. And so we're really working on, can we restore those forests to a condition where if there was a lightning strike and a wildfire got started, we wouldn't have to worry so much about it becoming a million acre fire like some of them we've seen in California. Um, you know, we know it would stay on the ground and do, do some good. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting that this one little bird, you know, that's that weighs 20 pounds and has a beard and a naked head can do so much for a community and um, and and the rest of that. The other thing I will say that's kind of cool about this, because We've got all this wood. It's really low value wood. There's a unique opportunity here to work with partners that we've never worked with before on um, new ways of utilizing that material. You know, we're all concerned about carbon and how much carbon is going into the atmosphere and finding uses for that small diameter wood is a far better alternative than putting it in a pile and burning it somewhere or letting it be consumed and just ravaged by wildfire. So um, we've had the opportunity to work with folks like Phoenix Recycling, but a number of other people that are really trying some unique and innovative things. Yeah, and the um, the higher quality wood. Talk a little bit about what we're able to do with that, because um, you know we're not just chopping trees down for the heck of it. You know there is a plan um, <laughs> with something to add value to these operations as well. Yeah, thank you for that question. So you know the the interesting thing when you start talking about doing work and across the West, we're talking about millions of acres that are at high risk for wildfire. And so there's a ton of work that needs to be done, but there's very little wood infrastructure left or timber infrastructure left. So there's, you know, there's a few mills around, but there's not very many. And so you're faced with this question of, if you want to use that timber versus letting it go to waste, do you move the industry to the to the work that needs to be done and the, the corresponding timber that would be coming from that work or can you move the timber to the industry and and leave the the industry where it is serving you know in a lot of those places those local industries um are sustaining whole towns right um everybody works at the mill or knows somebody who works at the mill um and and so i think it's really important that we leave that community structure in place and we're trying to revive an old school method of moving logs by rail from places where the work needs to be done and there's no local industry to a place some somewhere on a rail line where there's a mill that needs material in order to sustain a community. And so, again, I, th I think, you know, it's amazing to me when you start into these things, they seem fairly simple and they seem fairly straightforward. And then you start working on it and you see all these connections and all these all these strings that, you know, it's like an old rug, right? If you pull one string out of there, all the other strings in the rug are going to move. And um, I don't know, is it, it's just 
I, I think about the unique point that we are in history with funding from Congress that is supporting some of this stuff so we can really kind of get ahead of the curve or I don't know about get ahead, but make some progress. How's that? Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops and Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. Okay, this is... This is jumping around a little bit, um, but I know that something that has been a theme with that throughout like our our high level projects is we do a lot of work with um, timber companies uh, with uh, sort of taking care of um, land through forestry, uh, which I think is maybe confusing to some people um there's kind of been a uh maybe a, a cultural sort of perspective that has um seen the use of timber products as as a negative um and sort of a, a blanket negative for wildlife and for conservation um and you know understandably so given some of the forestry practice practices historically in the u.s but um you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about the we have some of these important like industry um, connections in our work, whether that's like the White Oak Initiative um, and how that connects to um, the the whiskey or the, the I should say the bourbon industry um, and <clears throat> the kind of continuity of, of that tradition in America. Um, also, the removal of cedars, like in my own state, uh, things that. Like we have these conservation issues that end up contributing to the economy and to wildlife. Um, maybe, so I, I guess I'll toss this up um, either for Jared or Doug um, to kind of touch on uh, what are what are kind of the projects that are, that are hitting both of those um, themes. Well, sure. You you touched on on one Gilbert that I can speak to, and um, you know I. I it's, thinking about the the white oak for example and how it you know it sure the work we're doing 
um, benefits, you know, the, the the goals and objectives of the White Oak Initiative. We we're helping to address some of the some of the needs there within that um, conservation strategy and assessment the initiative has. We're a part of that uh, team uh, of for the White Oak Initiative, uh, and you know we've we've been doing and, and are continuing to do work with our partners, um, thinking about some of the stewardship work on the U.S. Forest Service lands that that we're in agreement with them to help deliver, which, you know, for those that don't know, just just a real basic elevator speech on, on the stewardship. Uh, when we say, you know, Forest Service stewardship related work, very simply what that means is, you know, there's there's a, a timber harvest aspect of it to improve, you know, forest health and, and, and address forest management issues. And the the receipts, quote unquote, the 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 value of of that timber as it's removed goes right back on that same forest for um, what they call service work, what we call service work um, in the agreement, and that's wildlife habitat, fisheries habitat type work. For us, obviously, the the wildlife habitat is 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 key in our priority, especially those those aspects that benefit wild turkeys, right? So, in the process of delivering that sort of work, you know, we're we're having. Um, you know, I'll, I'll touch on some of the work that's going on in Arkansas and has gone on in Arkansas for a little bit where um, there'll be a timber harvest aspect. And some of the service work has been where our volunteers will help collect acorns. Um, they'll send it to a nursery um, in Georgia. And those um, after they're, you know, after after they grow and, and get to, you know, about a year, you know, they're sent back to that same area. And you know our volunteers and, and others are helping to you know get those back on the ground, right? And and so you know while we may be sending some of that wood to the mill for use in industry, we're also you know kind of taking it full circle and having our volunteers involved. And you know there's there's other example other examples of how we're you know benefiting you know just white oak and upland oaks in general um, through our through our um, stewardship work. Um, but that's just one you know, example that I like to use because our, our passionate volunteers are involved in it and, and there's just that full cycle aspect to it. So that's one way. Um, and then there's other ways too, where, um, you know, thinking about some other other issues. And I, I think what you're getting at is how some of our work um, dovetails into addressing other resource concerns. And, you know, whether it's, you know, so and, and Jared touched on this, Pat touched on this, you know, a, a lot of, our, you know, none of our work is is only benefiting wild turkeys. Um, you know, I, I just I can't imagine that that somebody can make the case that that's that, that that's happening. Um, you know, we've been involved in things in the Northeast where um, we're, we're addressing young forest, um, the decline of the young forest habitat, um, which has negatively impacted New England cottontails. And it was a huge effort across the Northeast region um, to keep them off off the uh, threatened endangered list um, from being listed. And and we were a part of that success. Um, and, and we're going to continue to deliver on that work and not rest on the laurels of that uh, decision to keep them off the list. So um, that is addressing uh, nesting and um, brood habitat needs of wild turkeys. But a lot of it is under the New England cottontail umbrella. So there's so many different examples of how we're doing work for the wild turkey under other resource concerns. Yeah. Um, did you want to jump in on that real quick, Jared? Yeah, I was just going to add, you know, I think when we think of the timber industry, we think of things happening at really large scale. And, and Gilbert, I just wanted to touch on, even as a, as an individual private landowner, you know, anytime you you do work on your property, you need to be thinking about, is there value to what I'm taking off my property? You know, for instance, you, you know, here in Kansas and, and where you're at, you could take a couple big mature walnuts, you know, again, again, trees are a renewable resource. You could take a couple of those big walnuts 
and it will pay for all the timber work to, to thin out all the stuff you don't want. Um, you know, not in every situation, but you know, in, in Eastern red cedars, you know, is there, is there a product for it, a product market? Is there, you know, cedar fence posts, locusts, even some people I know will use for fence posts. So I think it's, you know, the economics of it are always important. And I think, you know, that's the other thing we have across the whole country is as a staff is a lot of on the ground technical assistance to a private landowner. So foresters, Missouri, I think we have, we have two and a, two foresters and a biologist working in the NRCS office that is, is able to help that landowner see the, the financial side of it, the economic side of it. But, but yeah, I mean, I think it, it and again, especially in this part of the world, we want to see some of that disturbance. You know, if out here where I grew up, you know, in the Flint Hills, if, if we're not burning it, we're not managing it, it's going to be a forest and not a forest that we want. It's going to be, a, you know, honeysuckle and hedge and cedars. And so, you know, that's why we burn a lot is to keep that back. So, yeah, I think anytime you're working, even even on that smaller scale as a landowner, you know, there's a lot of technical assistance out there. And I would just encourage people to go seek out our staff or other partner staff that can help them kind of put the pen to paper on the, on the benefits economically, but also to wildlife. Absolutely. Pat? I just wanted to add hunting as wildlife management tool. And and I think sometimes it's not super intuitive for people, but but the timber industry is a vegetation management. And they're not the only tool, but sometimes they're the tool we need, right? And um and so I think it's kind of counterintuitive for people to think about that. But sometimes, um, you know, I, I think about my own garden and if I've got a row of carrots and it's super thick, I'm not going to get any carrots, right? I need to thin them out a little bit. And if we can use, um, you know, an industry partner to do that, that is going to result in lumber for somebody's home or even firewood or to Jared's point, fence post, right? Um, those materials have to come from somewhere. And uh, I think it's really neat when you can tie them all together um, for the wildlife habitat that it creates, the forest health that it creates, and, and we're benefiting people along the way. Yeah. Um, speaking of private landowners and uh, all the, the power that private landowners have, um, I, I wanted to to touch a little bit on Habitat for the Hatch um, and what that project is. I know we've talked about it, but um, Doug, if you could hit that again and and let people know what that's about. Um, I think that's a really exciting initiative. Yeah. So, so it's, it started with, you know, uh, really, I want, I want to get, you know, tip the hat to Jared and Pat, um, you know, with, with RMRI and, and the waterways for wildlife setting the table for our, you know, big time landscape level initiative based work. Um, you know, it, it really, you know, got us thinking, how can we um, put something together in the Southeast that, um, you know, is built in, in a similar manner that, um will address, you know, key habitat needs for wild turkeys because we've been hearing about, you know, turkey declines for for a while now in, in the southeast. And obviously it's it's near and dear to, to our heart and, and the agencies and, and our members. And a lot of people have their eyes uh, eyes on it. And, and, you know, we just, you know, built this um, initiative uh, with with team members across the organization from different departments. And I just, you know, want to tip my hat to everybody that was a part of that from our, you know, field operations side that helped with our our volu- chapter volunteers on the fundraising part of the um, equation, our communications team, um, our development staff, you know, it was just uh, alongside of our, our conservation staff. It truly was a team team effort, not just the internal team from the Southeast, but, you know, all the help that, you know, Jared and Pat provided 
um, to give guidance based on their experiences in, in putting initiatives together. So um, definitely wanted to recognize that. But, um, you know, it, saving you all the gory details of the process um, where, where we um, where we landed was like, hey, we, we really obviously, you know, wild turkey recruitment is a concern, lack thereof. Um, we're not we're not when I say recruitment, I mean, we're just not seeing the number of um, six, you know, nests being successful at hatching and the number of poults surviving to that um, through that critical two to three week period where um, they're still not able to roost up into the trees because, you know, you have that period where you have the, the hen incubating the nest for 28 days plus or minus a day or two where there there's a high level of vulnerability. Then you have, you know, the the post hatch period if they get that far um, where there's still that level level of vulnerability because, you know, they're the poults are unable to fly and they're there's you know they can't even roost up into into a bush and and so what they need in that window um though those two windows i should say they need quality nesting cover um next to quality brood habitat or one in the same both habitats being the same um and and so if if those two elements are good but they're really far apart what you have in between is a death march and and so we're trying to um we're trying to compress that distance. And in a lot of cases, in, you know, in the southeast, when you when you manage, you know, your forest stands, um, especially some of the, the pine stands, um, the pine habitats that are down there, when it's when you have a good, well-managed burn cycle um, and, and the habitat is right, then, you know, those two aspects are one and the same. And, and so you have great nesting cover needle in a haystack um where the hen can can safely you know usually you know have that nest and then as soon as they hatch and they start to be mobile um post hatch they can find insects that they need to grow and develop as quickly as possible so that as they're getting that protein from those insects they're able to get up into the bush um and roost overnight or that low low tree overnight um and get off the ground and then you know their survival rate goes up, you know, pretty significantly from that point. And then there's still another window where they have to get to fall. Um, and once they get to there, then their then their survival goes, you know, through the roof to another level. So um at the end of the day, that's that's where we landed, um, Gilbert, is is we really just want to make sure we're focused on, you know, not only um putting that type of habitat on the ground, but then also putting resources towards research that is going to help us understand. Um, continue to understand and learn more about how those two habitat components, if you know how how we can maximize our efforts when we're when we're actually doing the habitat work on the ground. Are there things we can do differently to make sure that that nesting cover is one and the same with the brood habitat, or when they're in systems where they're not one and the same? How do we make them in as close proximity as possible so that when poults hatch and they start walking away from the nest to get to that brood habitat where there's a high insect load? Um, that's as short a distance as possible between the two cover types. That's going to help us maximize um, the efficiency of our conservation work on the ground from a habitat standpoint, and it's going to help us focus on on what we need to learn from a research perspective to help, you know, continue to evolve and improve our efforts in that regard. Uh, another uh, thing that you you touched on um, that I think is is something that's worth exploring is is that research aspect because um, I think it's really easy to assume that we know 
um, especially the less you know about wildlife management. Um, as you like delve deeper into it, you realize how much we don't know and how many questions need to be answered. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, that's the, the scientific method is not assuming, you know, the answer looking for, um, for better data. Uh, what are the, you know, we, we just had this big investment into, into research, um, to try and answer some of the questions that that we the, that we don't know to get better answers, better guidance on future management. What are some of those projects? Um, and, and Doug, you can speak to this, Jared or Pat. Um, you know, what are the one, ones that you're excited about? Obviously, we're excited about all of them. Um, but yeah, let's touch on that. Well, I can jump in first. You know, I I've shared this quote Gilbert in a few places that. You know, when I was doing my graduate work, which is 20 years ago on turkeys, I remember one of my uh, advisors or one of the folks on my graduate committee said, don't we know everything there is to know about wild turkeys? You know, because that was kind of the, the it was wrapping up, you know, we'd, we'd learned a lot about life cycles. And I mean, if I had a dollar for every nesting study I've read in my life, you know, but the reality is things have changed. You know, I think we're, we're working in a different climate. You know, Pat talks about, you know, the forest conditions are where they're at. It's, it's the same in the, in the Midwest and, and across the East. And so a lot of that has just changed. Um, I, if I put myself in the position of a manager out there managing turkeys now and 20 years ago, I mean, it's just, there's so much that's different. There's just, you know, just how we farm, how, you know, urban growth, um, you know, how, even how we manage them from a hunting perspective, a regulatory perspective, a lot has changed. So um, I'm, I've been extremely excited to see um, the investments in wild turkey research. And, you know, as being an old turkey biologist, it's just really cool. I, I wish it wasn't in the face of declines in certain areas, but um, I think you're always learning, you know, with, uh, with, with a species um, as they continue to adapt in their environment, we need to figure out how they're adapting to it. And, Figuring out what we're doing, best management practices, how we're managing an oak forest, how we're managing a ponderosa pine forest, how we're managing a repairing area. Um, you know, we need to keep evolving with that. So lots of projects. Um, super excited. You know, there's a lot in the central region this year, uh, which was, was really cool. We've got some. The other thing I would say is cool to see the collaborative work. You know, I know in part of Doug's region, part of my region, um, like Tennessee and Indiana reached across the, the, the line, so to speak, at the Superfund level even to support some, some research that was uh, in Kentucky or was in Tennessee. But, you know, we've got a project here that's got multiple states in the Southern Great Plains are all kind of coming together. They're, they're asking the questions. Um, and, you know, what I've always appreciated about this organization is our, is our technical committee, which um, is basically representatives from our state wildlife agencies that all come together. They're all managing turkeys at some level. Um, and so our research is really driven by what do, what do your agency folks need to know to manage those turkeys? Because what they're what they need is what a private landowner needs to know too, right? Um, and so that's been my, you know, to me the really exciting part of it is they're pushing up these priorities, research priorities that we then send out in a request for proposals, and and obviously just some really cool research. You know, I think auditory devices like we weren't doing that. You know, GPS was just like it was like this far off distant, you know, Star Wars thing when I was doing research. We were out there with the old Yagi's and the big backpack transmitters, and so just the amount of data that they're getting the quality of, of those data that they're getting is just uh, mind boggling. So really cool to see the, the, the reinvestment. And I think it's going to pay dividends, you know, in the next five, 10, 20 years for future generations of in turkey hunters. You want to add to that, Doug? 
Yeah, sure. I, I, I you know, there's a lot of what Jared said, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm really excited about it too, just the investment overall and now seeing the number of projects that are, that are being done and that we're, we're collaborating with. I, I love what, I love that Jared mentioned the technical committee and, you know, you, you, you're part of, you know, we're part of conversations where agency um, staff are talking to each other about, you know, research priorities and, Hey, why don't we, why don't we, you know, do this across state lines. And, you know, I see it with Pennsylvania, Maryland, New Jersey, with some work that's going on, um, Kentucky, Tennessee. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always nervous about starting to isolate, you know, and mention certain projects that I don't want to leave anyone off. There's so much work going on that I'm really excited about. Um, but to Jared's point, too, about the technology, I mean, you, you think about where we've come with what's available um, to do this work now compared to where it was in the 80s and through the 90s. And the technology is so much different. So when you couple all the landscape changes and and even if the technology was the same, the results are going to be different um, for sure. You know, just based on the the landscape scale changes of habitat, um, what the environment is like at this point uh, for turkeys compared to then. Um, you know, so then you start to add the technology um, advancements to that. Um, it's it's amazing, and and we're gonna you know we're gonna learn new stuff, and we're gonna and every you know a lot of these projects are gonna wind up telling us, hey, you know, we went through this, you know, two to five year project, or you know, hopefully we get some longer term uh, work going on, um, and and these are the things we learned that we need to learn more about, and that's fine, um, that's fine, you know, identifying the things we don't know is is that's that's a big part of it. So um, this is going to be an ongoing effort for sure. And um, I'm really excited about that. And I'm I'm also really excited for the opportunity that all this work is going to provide for um, students to um, get the bug about doing wild turkey work and, and being wild turkey enthusiasts. Um, so that that part of it is excites me also um, because I I couldn't wait to have that opportunity to get involved in in a project that you know allowed me to be part of a rocket net going over a bunch of turkeys and then running out and 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 handling that, that was that was what really fired me up about getting into this field was when I first saw a rocket net video go off when I was in in schools in in um, junior high actually when I first saw that so um, that's what got me fired up and I'm I'm really excited for that aspect as well. Did you have anything that you wanted to add in there, Pat? You know, Doug and Jared did a beautiful job. I will just say I'm excited, too, because I think we all have theories about what's going on. And the only way that we know the answers or we get more information is through research. And so I used to say, you know, research was a good opportunity to like, you know, beautiful facts shoot down these awesome theories that we all have. And we find out what's really going on out there. I think it also points to what a professional organization the NWTF is by knowing that we have to invest in research for the future of the bird. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess before we close, um, in the spirit of Conservation Week, um, we touched on this a little bit, but for people who want to get involved, maybe they're a landowner who looks at their property and says, man, I don't think I'm doing enough or I want to I want to invest more into wildlife or somebody who just, you know, lives in an apartment and is like, Hey, how can I get involved? How can I volunteer? Um, what are the resources that are available to them? How can they get connected with conservation work with the NWTF? I guess I can jump in again real quick. Um, you know, I think, I think we all have time and, and, you know, talents and treasures. And so, you know, you can, you can get involved by supporting, you know, this organization financially, obviously become a member, um, at a minimum, but you know, you can, 
there's a lot of levels to that, um, that support. And, and the reality is doing good habitat work and doing solid research, man, it costs money. And, um, you know, we, we do a really good job of stretching our dollars. I, you know, I, I don't know what the it's 89, 90 cents on the dollar, you know, goes back out on the ground. Uh, you know, Pat and Doug could both talk about, um, match rates in their states, but like you think of like a water waste for a while, like, you know, we're eight, nine, 10, 15 to one. Um, match. So really good investment there. So I, I guess I would say, trust us with your funding. I think we've done a good job and I think we have a great track record, but you know, out on the ground, Gilbert, it's uh, get involved. I mean, go, go talk to your local, um, you know, go talk to Missouri department of conservation in Missouri and say, Hey, you know, are there any areas close that I can volunteer on and actually get dirt, get my hands dirty, you know, and we used to do a lot of fence pulling in the West uh, when I covered part of the West. And those, those are great projects. There's tree planting, you know, there's just a lot of opportunities. Um, a lot of the agency staff have a lot on their plate and it's easy for things to slip off of that and just knowing that they have a volunteer base. So if that's, if that's how you want to, you know, give some of your time, uh, you know, then obviously you can give your time on the, at, on a committee at a fundraising committee. And then, you know, I think, um, from a private landowner perspective, you, you know, again, we have a lot of technical assistance providers out there in the form of foresters and biologists and, you know, we've really worked as an organization to identify those areas where those folks are limiting, um, you know, getting the work done out on the ground. So I would say find, you know, uh, get on our website, find out where we have staff that can help. But, you know, if our staff aren't there and there's another partner organization, you know, just don't go it alone. Um, th there's funding available through the USDA uh, Farm Bill. There's a lot of the state wildlife agencies have some funding available, state forestry. You know, you can a lot of states, you can have a forester come out for free to look at your timber before you just start cutting it, you know, and you'd be, you'd be amazed what you could um, do from a wildlife uh, management perspective, but also from a, a timber management perspective to have funding down the road. Like I talked about earlier to harvest a few trees. So um, I think it's exciting how many resources are out there for a private landowner in today's society. And it's just really, there's just been a lot of investment because we recognize how much of the country is private lands. And obviously there's a gradient from, from East uh, to West off the pass area but at the end of the day, if we're going to move the needle for wildlife conservation in the country, we've got to work with private landowners. We get to work with them. And so we want them educated. We want to provide those education and outreach materials, uh, whether it's workshops or just printed materials or online materials. But, yeah, just uh, I would just encourage them to um, that there's a lot of resources out there. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add, Gilbert, too, if, um, you know, to, to build on that, you know, Jared mentioned, hey, just, you know, check out, check us out, you know, join, join, first of all, like you said, and then consider, you know, where you can provide, you know, other resources, time and, and effort, you know, from a volunteer perspective. And then, you know, from from a landowner, um, you know, perspective, you know, we may not have somebody in everyone's backyard that can come out and help and, and make that site visit and provide recommendations, but reaching out to our staff, we can help connect the dot to, you know, whether it's another um, NGO, uh, nonprofit organization, conservation like-minded organization that might have, you know, representatives in that area or the actual agency staff that um, would would be able to, you know, make that visit. But at the end of the day, we're, we're all trying to, you know, help landowners funnel through um, programs that give them the assistance that match the priorities that the landowners tell the resource professional they, they have that are important to them. And then um, they can take that advice and, and go from there uh, once they have that management plan. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're as 
we're, we've got a lot of resources from our staff perspective, but we're not everywhere. Um, and, and we work hand in glove with a lot of other conservation organizations that do great work. And, and we're more than happy to uh, provide that sort of information for landowners where, where we need to. So, um, but that's that. And then just, just enjoy the time, enjoy the season. Um, I mean, it's the, the leaves are just starting to change. So don't let fall come and go without, um, you know, being a little spoil yourself a little bit by taking the time with yourself and your family and, and be out in the woods and don't um, don't let that come and go without um, getting that time in the woods and the field and the water. For sure. Jared, you had something else. Just real quick, I wanted to add before you go to Pat, you know, um, there's a lot of resources out there, too, from an equ equipment perspective um, for private landowners. That's something we've really worked hard on over the years with with partners like the conservation districts, NRCS, FSA, um, USA service centers, um, where you can go get a grass drill, you can get prescribed burn equipment, um, uh, th that kind of equipment, prescribed burn associations. We we've really provided a lot of support in the central region for those. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of prescribed burn workshops that that's scary. If that's something you're not, um, you know, comfortable with or used to. So just wanted to give a quick plug for that too. you know, definitely check with your state agencies, check with us, our staff and, and find out if there's some equipment available for you too. That's a great point. That's like always, always a challenge. I, even I've been doing some yard work and, and did way too much with hand loppers. <laughs> and uh, I'm going to be calling some people from, for some assistance because there's only so much you can do with that. Um, Pat, was there anything that you wanted to add uh, before we close things out? You know, I was just going to double down on the on the become a member as a starting point, Gilbert. I, I often joke about if you drink water or know someone who does, you should be a member of the National Wild Turkey Federation. But it's really true because the work that we do is focused on the turkey, but it affects every person out there in some aspect of their life. And, um, you know, I think a, a clean healthy environment is something we all need. Absolutely. And I, I hope, um, you know, in, in the spirit of conservation week and, and just like what Doug said, you know, September's a beautiful month. It's a great time to get outside. It's a great time to take somebody else outside. So, uh, the end of this week will be capped off with national, um, uh, hunting and fishing day. I think I'm, I might be messing up the exact name of that, but, <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great time to go, to go enjoy the natural resources we have available to us. So I hope you all can do that. Um, get out, take someone hunting, um, go hunting, go fishing, um, enjoy that, that early fall time. Um, I really appreciate you all taking the time to, to talk with us and, um, we'll do it again. Thanks, Gilbert. Yeah, thank you. Hey guys, this is Aaron with The Hunting Public. Each spring we head to the woods chasing turkeys and one overlooked product that we use religiously is Sawyer permethrin. We've used it for years to keep ticks off of us and it's worked extremely well. We don't like messing around with Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, anything like that. So I would highly recommend if you're a spring turkey hunter spending any time in warmer climates in the outdoors to use Sawyer permethrin. Learn about their advanced insect repellents and family of technical lightweight water filters at Sawyer.com. Under the visionary leadership of founder Johnny Morris, Bass Pro Shops in Cabela's is leading North America's largest conservation movement. 
Their partnership with the National Wild Turkey Federation is a match made in heaven for hunters across America. The Save the Habitat, Save the Hunt initiative continues to be a resounding success, with more than $6 million provided for conserving wildlife habitat, recruiting more hunters, and opening more access to hundreds of thousands of acres across the nation. To learn more, go to BassPro.com conservation. Hey y'all, I'm Jason Hart, founder of Nomad Hunting Clothing. At Nomad, we're bringing simplicity and authenticity back to hunting. Whether you hunt to escape your hectic work life, for locally sourced organic meat, or to socialize with friends, to uphold your favorite family traditions, we're with you and we do the same. At Nomad, we understand your gears and investments, so our products are engineered and priced for every hunter, tested in the real world, and designed to last. Hunting is in all of us. Nomad is with you. 